This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us here for the first of the thematic panels of this workshop. Um, we've got the discussions have got off to a wonderful start, so I'm delighted that we can uh, give some space to the particular theme of family and relationship issues as they fall under CEDAW. There's There's been a little bit of a, a change of personnel on this panel. There's been a few last minute um yeah change of the change of personnel in fact but i just want to um before i introduce our, our wonderful speakers just say a word about why um i think that this this theme is really central to uh, our thinking as organizers and to some of the issues that cedor faces I and mean, fe feminists have always um sort of recognized the artificiality of the public private distinction and the importance of family life and for some feminist relationships of care have really been central to their thinking. Um, I've been reading Sarah, um, Sarah Ahmed recently and she's really um, shaped my thinking on the importance of the creation of home and relationships of care for lesbian women in particular. Um, and it, I think that really explains, I think, some of the focus that I've had, even intuitively, without understanding why, since the very start of my master's re, um, study into human rights, why relationships have formed the heart of that thinking um, and how, what kind of obligations international human rights law may place on states with respect to relationships that we build that sustain us and making those relationships possible um but it's incredibly complicated we've touched on a lot of these issues in the first panel and i think this panel really gives us an opportunity to dig down into some of those questions of difference um and diversity plurality questions of religion as well that come into play here when we begin to think about relationships as well as questions of the plurality of gender as well that come into play the some of the questions that have already risen touch on the um, different approaches that even within states um, that can emerge and which we've experienced in the United Kingdom. So what we've, and I, th I think for my um, money, I think this is an area in which CEDAW has a really important contribution to make and a lot more to say. There's a lot more room that could be given to the question of relationship recognition. We've got, um, a huge, I, I, I don't know whether we can think of it in terms of progress or whether that's too much, that exposes too much of a Western bias when we think about it. But we certainly see before other tribunals, a kind of the question of decriminalization as a starting point and then leading up to formal recognition of relationships uh, through marriage, addressing questions of parenthood as well, the positive obligations on states to enable individuals to create the family um, relationships that they want and to have those relationships supported and sustained through the state because the state does a huge amount of work through its laws and structures in supporting family relationships 
So these are some of the questions that we're going to touch on. We've unfortunately um, got, we, we're missing out today on Rosanna Flamer Caldera's contribution. She's um, been indisposed at the last minute, which um, I know I was really looking forward to hearing um, what Rosanna had to say. She's been working tirelessly in Sri Lanka for um, LGBTIQ equality. Um, and she has been spearheading litigation campaigns there that include an international dimension. Um, hopefully she'll be able to, I, I'm, I'm putting words in her mouth when I say, I would personally hope she can join us for late for tomorrow's discussion, but I've no, I've no idea whether that will be possible or not. Um, we do have with us, I'm really delighted to say, Danielle Roberts. Um, she's policy and development officer here in Northern, here in Northern Ireland which is a community organisation that empowers, supports and advocates for lesbian and bisexual women and their families. Danielle is a qualified solicitor and also a long-term activist as well. Um, joining Danielle um, presenting today is Imani Kamiri, who's Head of Legal Affairs at the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission of Kenya. The Commission is an organisation that's been that is heavily involved in advocacy work, including the repeal 162 campaign, um, referring to section 162 and section 165 of the Penal Code that criminalises same sex relationships. The advocacy campaigns that they spearhead are both national and international. So, again, I'm really looking forward to the contribution that Imani brings to us today and the perspective that both her and Danielle bring. And I'm equally really looking forward to the discussions we can have. There'll be plenty of space for discussions after these two presentations. But I think that's more than enough from me. I'm going to, if it's okay with Danielle, she's been put on the spot a little bit, but I, if it's okay to start with her, then I'm delighted to hand over to Danielle Roberts. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, as well as a, an activist and a policy development officer, I'm also a, an ongoing PhD student at TGI. So, um, yeah, several hats <laughs> to choose from. Um, so I'm going to speak a bit about um, the current situation for um, families in Northern Ireland. So um, I'm going to start speak a bit about um, our marriage um, laws, um, which recently changed. Which was which was good news, um, and our parental um, parental rights, and then I'm going to speak a bit about outstanding issues that we have. Um, so uh, I am sharing my screen, so I can't see the chat while I'm doing that. But hopefully, if you have any questions, you can pop them in there, and I can take them up after. So here and I, as was already mentioned, as a community organisation and registered charity based in Belfast. So we have a few different strands of work. Um, I do a lot of lobbying and um, consultation responses and um, advocacy to try and make the, the legal situation better for lesbian and bi women. Um, we have a family support worker, a children's department officer um, is her proper title, um, who runs a family group for same-sex parents and also um, a group for children of same-sex parents. So it's a group around building resilience and empowering children whose parents are LGBT. Um, and we also jointly with Cara Friend have a gender-based violence support worker who works with 
um, LGBT women and girls who are at risk of or who have experienced um, gender-based violence. So we have a few different few different things going on. On top of that, we, we deliver training, we have a range of peer support groups, we have a, a lot of social groups, so there's quite a lot happening, um, whether there's a pandemic or not. So to start off with talking about the legal status of relationships in Northern Ireland, um, 2020 was a big year for change. Um, from October 2019, if you're not familiar with Northern Ireland government, um, we have several crises. <laughs> um, so um, the devolved government in Northern Ireland was collapsed for three years. And um, before it came back, Westminster, as the, the body with obligation for, for upholding our human rights, stepped in to take action on two issues, um, one being um, marriage equality and the other being abortion access. So um, that came in in October 2019. By the time um, consultations were underway and paperwork was all sorted out, um, we introduced civil marriage ceremonies in February 2020. So it was just around Valentine's Day, which was quite quite nice. Um, then religious marriage ceremonies came later and civil partnerships are still available. Um, so these are now available to people of opposite genders or the same gender. Um, so the, the choices there for heterosexual couples to enter into a civil partnership as well. Um, as um, same-sex couples to enter into a, a marriage, whether that's a religious or a civil ceremony. Um, we also got conversion of civil partnerships to marriage towards the end of 2020. So now people who were in a civil partnership can convert that to a marriage if they choose, or they can continue with their civil partnership. So that has various benefits, including um, international recognition. Um, some of our members are in relationships with people from countries who where they didn't recognize civil partnership so um for example if you were from the uk and married to somebody from france um france didn't recognize a civil partnership they'd only recognize the marriage so um so that has had some real um legal benefits um one issue that we still have is that um, we don't have legal recognition of non-binary people, so there's no way for somebody to be um, to legally declare that their gender is non-binary. Um, so the legislation does all talk about um, about men and women. Now thinking about LGBT plus families, um, so I'm going to talk about. Um, a few different paths to parenthood, so adoption, surrogacy and assisted conception, focusing on assisted conception through a licensed clinic, whether that's NHS or privately funded, um, but not so much donor, donor insemination because it doesn't, um, it doesn't confer the same legal rights. So adoption, after uh, a few legal challenges, um, a court of appeal ruling in 2013 um, put in place um, that same-sex couples were able to adopt whether they were in a civil partnership or not, which was at the time um, marriage wasn't available. So currently the process is exactly the same for heterosexual couples, same-sex couples and single people. Um, and there have been a number of children placed with, um, with same-sex couples 
and we have heard heard good reports of people feeling that they're they're treated the same way and scrutinized the same way as any other couple would be um so that is that has been a, a positive development looking at assisted conception so IVF and IUI lesbian couples who are civil partners are married at the time of conception automatically um are both considered legally the parents in Northern Ireland um if they're not civil partners or married at the time of conception, but conceived through a, a licensed clinic, then there's some paperwork to be filled in, but both can be considered um, legally mothers of the child um, from the time of conception. So um, this is full parental rights, just the same as um, a heterosexual couple who had conceived um without assistance or um with assisted conception so this only applies through where the conception is through a licensed clinic so either nhs or privately funded it doesn't apply to home insemination so if somebody uses um a sperm donated by a friend or family member and self-inseminates at home they, that doesn't confer any legal rights onto the non-birth parent, um, they would have to adopt um, the child um, and the, the sperm donor isn't really classed as a sperm donor, they're classed as the father and can be on the birth certificate. So we would never recommend that people go down a, a home insemination route because legally it can be very um, messy. Surrogacy is um, currently under review, but um, it's not quite as clear cut. Um, whenever uh, a woman who's a surrogate gives birth, she is legally the mother. And if she has a, a civil partner or a, a spouse, they are automatically treated as the second parent until a parental order is made. So that is currently under review, but um, at the minute, um, with surrogacy, there is um, a court order after birth to transfer parental rights. Um, Northern Ireland doesn't have a lot of surrogacy happening within Northern Ireland, but there are people who travel elsewhere to, um, to make use of surrogacy arrangements. Um, so that's something that um, we're going to have to keep an eye on whenever the, the law is reviewed. And it's also something that our healthcare professionals currently aren't being really trained on. So it's a bit of a, a gap in knowledge in Northern Ireland. That is something that, that might come up more um, in the near future. So that's some uh, rights that we have achieved. Um, but there's, uh, yeah, not everything, not everything has been won. Um, so I've mentioned assisted conception and that um, both mothers are, can be, are, are legally parents through assisted conception in the examples I've given before. Um, but there isn't an equality of access for um, lesbian couples um, as well as heterosexual couples. Um, there's a requirement that you try unsuccessfully for a year before you get IVF treatment. Um, and in some cases that's been interpreted for a lesbian couple as meaning you have to have private treatment for a year unsuccessfully before you can get NHS funded treatment. Um, 
that's just not that's not equality of access um a lesbian couple trying unsuccessfully for years gonna be either a very expensive process or um one where they'll have to engage in in risky behavior health wise and legally um there's also um recently there's been regulations introduced for donor um iui so inter-uterine insemination which is less invasive than IVF and would be more appropriate for quite a few lesbian couples. Um, however, the funding that was allocated would only allow for five couples a year to go through um, treatment. Um, so that's not, it's not sustainable and it's not, it's, it's certainly not adequate. Um, while in Northern Ireland, both mothers are treated as legal parents on the birth, named on the birth certificate with full parental rights. Um, this isn't the case in the Republic of Ireland, where in most circumstances, only the, the person who gives birth is recognized as the mother. Um, this has, as well as massive emotional issues, um, it also has legal implications. For example, if a child is born outside the island of Ireland to a birth mother who is English and a non-birth mother who is from Northern Ireland and therefore entitled to Irish citizenship, the birth certificate will name both parents, but the Irish government will only consider the birth parent. So because she is English, the Irish citizenship can't pass to the child. Um, and we've had a number of people who have had issues getting an Irish passport, who have been flat out rejected, and even one who has been told their passport was issued an error um, because the Irish government doesn't recognise both parents as, um, as legally being parents. Um, this has issues for our, um, our friends in the South. Um, Equality for Children are currently campaigning on this issue and I would encourage you to look out um, for any articles by them because they are certainly uh, more of an expert on it than I am. Um, but there is a real issue of um, lack of recognition for same-sex parents by the Irish government and that um, seeps in to, to people who engage with here and I get because um, in Northern Ireland we, by right, we can be British, Irish or both, but at the minute that right isn't afforded to to all all the children of um of people who are entitled to our citizenship um gender-based violence legislation we northern ireland is pretty behind the rest of the uk when it comes to gender-based violence legislation um we are currently in the process of a stocking bill going through um we don't have upskirting legislation um we don't we we're working on strangulation as a standalone offense legislation so there's a lot of work going on on gender-based violence legislation and we are trying to make sure that includes um where perpetrators are in a, a lesbian relationship as well um that it's not a heteronormative assumption um and that there's support and targeted and adequate support available for LGBT um, people who are victims or survivors of gender-based violence. 
Um, there's also a number of social inclusion strategies currently working through Stormont. I did mention that uh, Stormont does go through periods of crisis. We're hoping that we aren't about to have another one. Um, we're in a position where we're waiting to find out who the next First Minister is going to be. Um, but hopefully, all being well, Stormont will not collapse and the social inclusion strategies will continue to be developed. So we have, there's one on poverty and one on disability. And then here and I um, sits on the co-design groups for the gender equality strategy and what's currently called the LGBTQI plus strategy. Um, so we are hopefully going to go some way to having um, recommendations for government and measures to hold them to account. Um, potential things that CDAW could consider. Um, we've had we've had really great success with CDAW um, in Northern Ireland on um, access to abortion in particular. Um, the CDAW inquiry found that there was a grave and substantial um, violation of human rights because of the position where people were, were forced to travel for an abortion or to carry a pregnancy to term. Um, so those recommendations from CEDAW were massively helpful for um, judicial reviews and later for, for legislation um, being developed. Um, other issues that for LGBT people, particularly LGBT young people, um, that are very pertinent are access to education and access to healthcare. Another issue, which is one that I know has been popping up in the chat box a wee bit, um, is the use of language, um, gender neutral or non-binary language. I don't have an answer. I think it's important that we keep talking about women. Um, when we talk about abortion access in particular, we talk about women and pregnant people because not everybody who can and will get pregnant is a woman, but there's also particular impacts of misogyny. So um, yeah, I know why not both is um, a bit of a, a cliche, I guess, but um, yeah, should we use gender neutral language or non-binary language? But then how do we also center um, women and tackle um, tackle misogyny? So I don't have an answer, but um, I guess it's a, a discussion that's probably gonna go on for a while. Um, the reason I've picked out education and health are, these are some statistics, I'm not gonna go through them all, but um, one of the key ones is that, um, two thirds of young people um, in Northern Ireland, LGBT young people, didn't feel that they were welcomed or valued within school. Um, that's that's massive. And um, almost half of LGBT young people didn't feel like school was safe for them. This is research conducted by our own Department of Education. So there are massive issues with access and education for LGBT young people. And then mental health and LGBT people, mental health levels in Northern Ireland, or there's, there's high incidences of, of poor mental health. Um, we are a, a post-ceasefire society, if not a post-conflict society. But if we look at the LGBTQ plus community, particularly younger people, there's, there's massively high levels of poor mental health. Um, just to draw your attention to the bottom, um, LGB young people are three times more likely to contemplate suicide than heterosexual young people, while trans people are almost five times more likely to contemplate suicide, and um, also five times more likely to be diagnosed uh, with and medicated for depression. So um, access to healthcare is something I'm sure will come up with 
Alexa, tomorrow um, our trans healthcare is abysmal. I'm not going to speak about that today, but um, as well as access to reproductive healthcare, including assisted conception and abortion access, um, mental health and, um, and trans health are all massively under-resourced and um, people aren't getting the care that they, that they have a right to. Um, just to end on a positive note, um, the successful use of CEDAW. So I've mentioned the inquiry that CEDAW conducted into um, abortion access in Northern Ireland. And in 2019, the same act that um, brought in equal marriage also incorporated um, two recommendations of the inquiry report, which called for um, abortion access and um, also combating gender stereotypes, particularly that which um, highlight that a woman's main role is as a mother, which is something that even our former first minister was told by her party colleagues. Um, and then also column for comprehensive relationship and sexuality education. So in the CEDA inquiry process has been used successfully in Northern Ireland to bring about legislative, legislative change. And I think, um, yeah, maybe it's something we could we could um, deploy on other issues as well. And that's me finished. So there's some contact details for for me and for here and I. Um, if you want to have a, a look to see what else we we do. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for that wonderful contribution, Danielle. I think it it not least highlights for us all the, the layers of laws and legislation and the patchwork that goes on to constructing the family um, in national and international law. So once we start addressing these questions, it raises this whole host of complexities for us and not least. The one thing we can see there which really jumped out to me is that that question that we addressed right at the start is how do you create categories of inclusion without then creating the exclusions that follow from them. And that, so you, you highlighted some of those exclusions beautifully there. So thank you for that really careful overview um, of what's happening in that, your jurisdiction. Um, on, on this note, uh, I think we're gonna press on to the next presentation. We'll, we won't pause for questions just yet or contributions. Um, if it's okay with Imani, I'm gonna pass straight over to Imani Kamiri. Um, yeah, let, let's let's hear from you. Can, Catherine, can you spotlight? Uh, thank you so much, Lavde. Uh, my name is Imani Kimiri. I am a feminist. I am queer. I am also bisexual, and I am a lawyer. So I identify under so many hats. Maybe not as big as. <laughs> Uh, as big as all other people who've spoken before me, but yeah, I I really am proud of things that I I hold and the hearts that I hold. Uh, my pronouns are also Imani or they, uh, and thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to share um, very very shortly on what instances uh, queer folks and in particular uh, L lesbian bisexual transgender, intersex, um, non-binary folks who um, are perceived to be women uh, face and what their realities are. 
Um, so I would uh, allow me shortly to begin with uh, the, the institution that I work for. I work with an, an organization called the National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. And um, our objectives are usually to promote and protect the equality and inclusion of LGBTQ individuals in Kenya and meaningful participation in society. So that would range from instances where we would um, participate in a strategic litigation um, where we go court and demand for instances that have been included in international laws and treaties and covenants and also in Kenyan laws as enshrined in Kenyan laws so that LGBTIQ persons can have a wholesome uh, life to ad ad aspire to, right? We also try in numerous ways to offer um, legal aid, uh, civic education training, paralegal training, so that uh, we are in a community of uh, queer people who understand at least what the law is and what the law means to them and means in which they could be protected or we could be protected in the law. Uh, so how do we navigate the society as queer human rights, uh, queer, queer, queer persons living in Kenya. So, and in particular to uh, the session that talks about family as uh, a right that is uh, supposed to be, uh, you know, enjoyed by all LBQTI persons in Kenya. How do we go about it? So in Kenya, the biggest problem is I want to say homosexuality, sorry, uh, the biggest problem is homophobia, transphobia, biphobia in relation to uh, criminatory laws that are enshrined in our, in, in our laws of Kenya. So we have these sections that you've had numerously spoken about uh, known as sections 162 and 165, which talks about unnatural offenses um, where every person who is presumed to have carnal knowledge and carnal knowledge in this instance is talking about um, adult, adult sensual, same gender or same sex uh, relations. Uh, and in private, then if this person is um, convicted of the crime, then this crime uh, accords them about 14 years in jail. Uh, another sections of the law that are attached on 62 of the code are sections 11a of the sexual offenses act which talks about indecent acts within among adults so these are sections of a law that are particularly used to persecute lgbtq individuals and more so persons who engage in consensual adult same-sex or same-gender relationships or liaisons so in an event that um a person is even presumed, you know, or is uh, is presumed that their their sexual orientation is different from what is perceived to be the norm. Then we have uh, the state and state actors actually enforce the sections of the law and take them through processes and processes that are very strenuous and ensure that the rights to dignity of uh, LGBTQ individuals in Kenya are uh, infringed on and. Therefore, ensuring that a lot of us are living in state 
state of fear, a constant state of we are not able to interact and live as true to ourselves as we are. And what is the trueness in this nature, right? And in particular in relation to Article 16. So I want to give you a, a small background of um, a strategic litigation case that is currently ongoing in court. Currently, uh, it's at the Court of Appeal, but it's uh, Petition 150 and 234 of 2016, which uh, numerous human rights defenders, uh, allies, uh, NGOs, and uh, CSOs alike uh, petitioned the court to have these sections of the law struck from the law. Uh, sections 162 and 160 talk about unnatural offenses. And we went through the whole court process uh, from 2016. And in 2019, on May 24th, we have the High Court actually rule that um, uh, the, the, the case did not bear any merit because um, the rights of the minority cannot overwhelm or overrule uh, the rights of the majority, which is not a true need when you're looking toward the rule of constitutionalism and the rule of law, right? Minorities, the rights of minorities are supposed to be constantly yeah, protected so that you can ensure that there's a democratic state um, where all persons are protected, right? And amongst the issues that uh, the judges raised when uh, they were throwing out our petition in regards to Report 162 was uh, one such reason is LGBTIQ individuals would be seeking the right to marry, which in their opinion would be a detriment to the family as a unit because uh, one, it would, in, in their opinion or in the societal opinion, it will bar uh, procreation because in, in, in no way or form would anyone imagine LGBTQ individuals would have families without procreating. How do you procreate? How do same, same gender folks procreate, right? Uh, another reason it would be and in the right to family, they actually stated that Kenya as a state is not ready to uh, embrace uh, instances where same sex and same gender uh, couples can actually cohabit and uh, live freely within um, and, 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 and literally have uh, the, right to, to, the right to engage into a marital partnership, right? So that uh, in, in, in numerous ways and looking into instances that Kenya actually ratified the pseudo convention uh, about 36 years ago, I think it was in 1986. And uh, looking at all the my predecessors who spoke before me uh, in instances where the commission actually, the, the convention was talking about uh, realizing uh, protection and uh, anti-discriminatory laws towards LGBTIQ individuals. So how is withholding the right to marry or bringing about uh, the right to, to be for LGBTIQ individuals to be in a marriage, you know, or in a partnership, how does that then realize the full intention of the CEDAW convention, right? In other instances, you, when you're looking into uh, adoption, uh, for instances of LGBTIQ persons, 
the Children's Act of Kenya and uh, sections 158 clearly stipulates uh, sections of the law and gives grounds to which uh, people are not allowed to adopt or grounds of refusal to adopt, you know. So one such uh, amongst numerous grounds of a person's, ha a person's have to have sound mind, uh, if you're a convicted felon, then you cannot, you cannot have uh, the right to adoption or a, a grant to adoption cannot be issued to you. Amongst other issues, they also mention that being a homosexual is a ground that a person who identifies as LGBTQ cannot adopt and give a child a home. What does that mean? Does that mean that we are unfit? Are we clustered in instances where uh, LGBTQ individuals cannot have families because we are considered a ground, we are considered as our basic um, existence is considered as an illegal stature, right? So it's, it's such an issue in instances where uh, people, uh, have you know like want to uh, go the step further and welcome you know they're able to bring about uh, people in their families and want to bring about children who they're able to cater to then they are barred by such sections which for me is very discriminatory and it also bars like someone's right to uh, live in their the enjoyment of their full their rights to their full extent right we also look at instances where uh, LGBTIQ persons in Kenya, uh, by the bas basic virtue of us being considered as a criminality or a criminal beast, we do not enjoy the rights that are enshrined in Article 16, basic rights like um, rights to ownership of property, whether it's uh, ownership that is uh, passed off to us from um, families or uh, our parents who might have have had such properties and uh, in the form of inheritance of the properties is what I mean. And why, uh, why would I say that we, are, we do not have such access? It's because we, uh, the organization I work for comes across so many instances of people who have been rejected by their families because of their sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, expression and sex characteristics. So they do not have that access to gain um, um, properties that would have been acquired to them through inheritance. They are totally uh, weird in instances we have been totally rejected by our families, disowned from our families. So we are not, the, the law in itself, you know, you have to go, there's a saying that they say in the courts, you have to go to equity with clean hands. So how do you then go to the courts to inquire of uh, your rights to property, to ownership of property, and state that one of the grounds in which you were denied such property is because you identify as LGBTQ, which is also so very, so very, so very um, such a very big problem, right? And um, also instances where we have experienced numerous clients who come to us uh, and uh, they state that uh, they were coerced or forced to be in um, 
I want to say marriages that suit their particular uh, people who are forcing them into marriages because they were in one time or another either outed because of their uh, sexual orientation, surgic status, or um, and then their family because of cultural assuation, persuasions and religious persuasions then forced uh, LGBTQ individuals in numerous, in numerous instances to uh, be in marriage, marital relationships, uh, because they do not want to be subjected to the shame that came from people in the community being aware that their children identified as such. So you find uh, instances where once the spouses are, are aware of such instances, it uh, deteriorates to an instance where there's physical uh, harassment and violence, sexual violence, yeah, which goes to uh, numerous instances of corrective rape uh, and also domestic violence. But we live in a society where uh, LGBTQ people in Kenya are not very forthright in um, presenting these matters to state actors because they know in the, in the background that they are going to be further persecuted if they stipulated that they, one of the reasons as to why they uh, they were persecuted or, or they were in this instance of violence that uh, that was occasioned to them was because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. So uh, how does in particular CEDO uh, come to, uh, how can CEDO be particularly meaningful in ensuring that uh, there's protection against, protection for LGBTQ individuals uh, I want to say, um, like my the previous uh, my previous um, panelists, uh, how, what what they mentioned is, yes, we should at all times uh, be be able to bring about instances and verbiage that includes transgender and gender nonconforming persons and intersex persons. Kenya has been very progressive in that we, in the past five years have had so much research in regard to intersex people to the extent that intersex people were actually enumerated in the last census which happened in 2019. And intersex folks were actually um, enumerated as the a, a different gender from the particular, the, the generic male and female binary. So there was the intersex, intersex um, binary that was, whether you're intersex then you are, you know, known to be intersex by the government. And the government is also bringing about um, numerous um, policy and different policies based on uh, people who identify of a, sec a different sex characteristics. Um, there's also numerous, numerous laws and precedent that has been set by court, but in which the government or the state has been reluctant or has neglected or uh, has been yeah, negligent in upholding uh, numerous uh, precedent that has been uh, very progressive in regards to uh, protection of LGBTIQ individuals and in particular, and in instances where precedent has been set, then you, you find that, um, and it's, it, it's particularly uh, not uh, only in LGBTIQ instances, but in general instances that also involve human rights, um, uh, you know, human rights persuasions. The government has been, it's been a push and pull to have the state actually, you know, 
uh, adhere to the pronouncements of a court. Um, I think I'll end it at that unless I have any questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Imani. That, that was a really rich and wonderful presentation. Uh, for, for me, the really important message that came across there was the interconnectedness of rights and the complexity where we think that relationship recognition may be presented as a straightforward matter, just the, the range of rights that are implicated in this discussion are just got quite breathtaking and really demonstrated um, in, 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 a, in a very clear way through your presentation. So thank you so much for that, Imani. I want to now open the floor to for discussion. We have, as previously, we have some um, panelists here who are able to um, present, open their screens and, and ask their questions directly. For those of you who are on, yeah, otherwise on Zoom and but not able to um, voice your question, then please do type them your questions away. I've got the Q and A open now and I'm keeping an eye on that. So we'll be taking questions from both directions. So what I'm gonna, how I would like to start is by encouraging our panelists here and other people who are here live to raise their hands if they have a question. And um, I'm going to kick off with Senya, um, if that's okay, because I can see she's got her hand up and is eager to kick us off. So Senya. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Thank you. And uh, generally, it's such a wonderful panel and such a wonderful exchange of views. Uh, I have some um, comments on the both of the presentations. And the first one, uh, which was about uh, family and CEDO, for me, it's also a question of um, who is the other, who is the other subject. And because I'm also have like, I have different, um, different hats as an international human rights defender, also having a background in local advocacy. Uh, in trying to do my PhD with the University of Leicester. Um, so for, for me, it's usually like, you know, personal is political and I can just share one story uh, that happened to my friends and that shows how sometimes um, the lack of intersectional analysis, uh, including uh, the analysis of CEDA could actually affect uh, the real uh, lives of people. So I have friends who are a couple of um, kind of lesbian couple and uh, one of the women, she is a cis woman, she's gender woman, and the other woman is a trans woman. So they, um, they gave birth to a child who is biologically connected to both of them. And then they moved to the UK because one of them were, uh, was working there. And then they wanted to change the, uh, to obtain basically the birth certificate that would indicate both of the uh, women as parents. And the problem was that the UK legislation that we would probably see as progressive because it could recognize two women from the birth of the child as uh, co-mothers. But the problem was that this legislation is connected to assisted reproduction and um, all these things, meaning that because in, uh, in case of my friends, they um, give birth to a child in the other way, and the child is biologically connected to both of them. 
in this case, they were not able to obtain the birth certificate. Uh, the trans woman was uh, asked um, quite intrusive and illogical questions. For example, from what moment you started to realize that you are trans woman? And of course, it's not like you're just like one moment, one morning, you just like wake up and realize that you're a trans woman. So it was, uh, we can we can think uh, about, for example, the UK or other countries as like really progressive. But the, for me, the question is who is the other and who is left behind? And here we can see that actually the UK, yes, the UK adopted quite progressive legislation about lesbian women, cis lesbian women. But when it comes to the intersections between um, sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender, it's still the problem. And uh, well, unfortunately, we were trying to bring this case um, during the uh, country review of the United Kingdom uh, by CEDAW, and it was not uh, you know, transformed into any recommendations, but that's just one example of how intersectional analysis could allow us to actually see who are left behind. So that's about uh, like uh, this first part of the presentation. Uh, second, I have also some ideas about Imani's uh, presentation, and so I'm originally from Russia, and I still have a Russian passport, and the, as you can imagine, Russia is not the most, you know, LGBTI-friendly country, uh, and for me, the question was always, like, mm, all this international law, how we can uh, rely on this? Because, like, when our countries are not uh, keen to implement the recommendations, uh, do we actually need to spend all these limited resources to fight for our rights in on the international area? And the second thing is, and I will be talking uh, about this more tomorrow, is that the positive result is not always guaranteed. And for instance, I had a case um, related to hate speech against me, and I brought the case to the CEDO, and uh, the communication was um, considered as inadmissible. <laughs> meaning that uh, I was not able to get justice not only in my own country, uh, but also in CEDAW. And um, as Mario Matsudo was saying about hate speech and you know all these minority groups that when um, your government is not protecting you, you are basically a stateless person at the end. And that's kind of my feeling, but when you cannot also get this protection on the fora, which you would consider as like, you know, progressive feminists and so on and so forth, and you receive a negative results, uh, that also like, you know, it has also some implications. And maybe my question is to Imani is that like, how you um, maybe rationalize for yourself why you use international mechanisms? Because I, I still believe in uh, international law and in CEDAW, and for me, it's more like, you know, resistance, uh, because we want to be the part of the human rights agenda. We want to be a subject. We want to be there and we want to form the agenda. And therefore, for me, it's also like the fight. It's uh, also resistance. I don't want to be invisible. So that's how I am trying to rationalize why I'm still working in this space. Uh, and. You know, I just wanted maybe to to ask Imani what uh, what the position uh, of uh, communities in Kenya, because I can imagine that it's also could be problematic for you. And my last uh, idea is about like marriage, because you know, especially in the feminist jurisprudence, 
the marriage and same-sex marriage was criticized a lot by feminists specifically because you know it's all patriarchal institutions and also on and so forth but i also think that uh, in part it's um it can be about this like colonial or post-colonial thinking because like i am coming from russia when we never had um, same-sex marriages uh, or any protection for lgbti people and for me as a lesbian woman for me it's really important to have access to uh, marriage to same-sex marriage and to be able to be recognized with my partner and it's not uh, for me it's not uh, just to you know to confirm to traditional norms but for me the very act of being in a marriage it's uh, like a anti-patriarchal resistance and for me it's also the opportunity to build uh, alternative and feminist universe in this marriage so i was also talking to some of my friends from south africa who was also kind of sharing with me that when we as for example lesbian women when we created marriages for us it's not just conforming to patriarchal stereotypes but it's also about uh, building other alternative realities and uh, i just maybe wanted to mention this that uh, there is a lot of criticism of uh, same-sex marriages uh, specifically in what we call global north because it's like uh, this patriarchal but i think that maybe for people who are actually uh, based in um, lesbophobic patriarchal lgbti phobic countries it can be a bit different so that's that's kind of my input and i would love to to, to hear from you any feedback on this and thank you so much again for organizing this discussion thanks for that intervention senya we you the audience will now get a sense of how lucky i am to have such a wonderful phd student and we'll be hearing more from senya tomorrow um in the final panel as she said there um I'm going to ask Imani if she would has a response at this stage to that question. I'd also I will I, I will turn to Danielle as well. I'm particularly intrigued to I, I'm not sure I don't want to put you on the spot, but the question about feminist approaches to marriage was one that particularly yeah, caught my ears. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but I'll I'll see. Don't feel compelled, but. Perhaps I'll start with Imani, and then after that we have a question in the wings from Megan, and I'll come back come back to that next. But Imani, over to you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for the questions. Uh, I the, there were cup, uh, quite a few, so if I forgot any questions like that you raised, just let me know so that I am able to come back to them. Um, so how do we specifically rely on international law? So, um, so we have uh, a constitution that uh, talks about uh, international law as a source of law in Kenya. So all laws that have been ratified by Kenya as a state, which then form laws in Kenya. So in instances where we want to say, for example, go to court for an instance of strategic litigation, like the repeal 162 case that I was just talking about uh, in regards to unnatural offenses. Then we cite instances in international law and jurisprudence that are actually useful in that matter. So then it gives judges, judges and magistrates and judicial officers a broader perspective of what to exactly look at and compare it with when coming to decisions. So it's very important. And um, so I, our organization also uses international law as I want to say um, 
a basis of comparison on what exactly we would imagine that would be would bring about equality and protection of LGBTQ individuals in Kenya. So in instances where, and sadly because of colonization, a lot of laws, if not all actually, all laws that why in Kenya prior to uh, repealing of some sections or, uh, you know, like overhaul, removal of some laws in Kenya and creation of laws were, uh, were actually adopted from colonial, the colonial masters, right? So all these laws form a basis of us being in a situation where we have to ape a lot or we have to borrow a lot from people or states that have been progressive or have actually litigated or um, use legislature to change and shape laws that actually are um, beneficial to the society, right? So that's those are instances as to why we have to use them. And an another instance is also in, in regard to advocacy. Our advocacy is not particularly uh, targeted to the state, right? It's also targeted to the general public. It's targeted to state actors and state uh, and the state in different ways, like targeted to um, the, the health ministry of health, you know, uh, the judiciary, uh, police officers, um, health workers. So we would use instances where we know that uh, there's the general principle that international law and domestic law alike uh, requires sets such certain requirements that should be adhered to and that's where we would use them in advocacy and changing the mindsets of people who actually you know would create the general public if that makes sense like bits and bits, bits and pieces of people you know it's not just the giant you have to do do so much work within like numerous instances that you're able to achieve the goal that you're going through. It might actually be something that is strenuous or something that takes a longer time that, to achieve a particular goal. But I think all these instances of advocacy in different instances make uh, life better or easier. You wouldn't compare, in an example, you wouldn't compare the situation of LGBTQ individuals in Kenya right now in 2021 to the situation that it was in 2006, right? So there's, the law is still discriminatory, it's still um, homophobic, transphobic, but there are different, uh, different ways in which policy may have been amended or created to ensure that some things here and there make life easier for LGBTQ. Um, how do we use international mechanisms? So we are engaged also in uh, the regional community through the African, uh, the African channel SCHPR. And we also do shadow reporting for instances, numerous instances of the UPR mechanism, the uh, international covenant against uh, all forms of torture and degrading treatment and inhumane treatment, uh, the ICSCR. So in different ways, we find that missions are able to, um, I want to say, uh, issue recommendations to, to the state in ways that we, as the, 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 the lay person or the layman, the, the citizen in, in Kenya wouldn't be able to, because the state would 
sort of adhere to what is being brought about by, by different missions as opposed to what the citizens in Kenya might need because they would think that there are repercussions that would be coming about, you know, that would come about in an event that they do not adhere to, you know, uh, recommendations by state. For example, uh, Article 16 of the CEDAW Convention was actually ratified by Kenya. So, you know, there's a way, there's a presentation in which um, Kenya would uh, be or would, would, would envision itself towards uh, different missions, but does not, that, that does not reflect directly to how they ensure protection of uh, all citizens' rights in Kenya. Um, so what is my take on um, uh, patriarchy in same-sex and same-gender relationships? Uh, unfortunately, this is something that has been programmed particularly to all of us. And uh, it is something that it takes a lot of unlearning. And I'm sure a lot of us are still unlearning these processes because there are instances, say, uh, um, 10, 20 years ago that people would not understand how uh, women who are pre presumed to be both masculine presenting can be in a relationship. Then you would have, for example, cishet people ask, who's a woman, who's a man, you know? Growing from a, a situation that we can actually perceive that women, whatever roles that they play, does not like uh, have to have a construct of um, male and woman or male female um, binaries or or role have been opened to families. But the processes uh, are usually very slow. And that I blame a lot of this on religion and culture. We are still based in a, in, in a situation where, uh, for instance, every five years we vote against tribal lines, even if like for the previous five years, we would be in cahoots with whoever our neighbors are, but without knowing that what their tribe is. So it actually goes down to also lines that have been created, binaries that have been created based on people being male and female. And this is particularly so difficult, uh, especially if you come or you reside from uh, rural areas, then you, would, you wouldn't be able to even stay uh, with your partner because of the constant, um, the constant reminder or imagination or uh, the de degradation that comes from the people who you you imagine are, are your community because of your sin, your, your, your sexual orientation. Uh, the position for communities in Kenya, especially LGBTIQ communities in Kenya is these constant um, violations that we experience, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, that range from murder to corrective rape to uh, you know, being jailed for same-sex engagement, to being denied even the, 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 the right to have a family, to 
people being, you know, suspended or expelled from school once they've been outed in the, by the families because of their sexual orientation. We see numerous, numerous people and stories on the media because we do media, media monitoring of children who have been uh, expelled from school, denied the right to basic education because they identified or people presumed that their orientation was, you know, not the norm. Um, I think I want to end at that. Over. Thank you very much. What I, um, that was just a wonderful answer. What I love about feminist engagement with international law is that we don't, we, we're, we're very good at putting, at being pragmatic in the way we approach international law. We don't kind of reject it entirely as a useless tool, but we don't hang everything on it. And you've really kind of talked us through some of some of that really, really well. So thank, thank you, Imani. I'm just gonna get turned to Danielle now. There's a bit of a discussion going on in the chat about marriage. I don't know if that's something you want to pick up or any other points, but I'll pass over to Danielle. I think it's probably a similar pragmatic approach. Um, marriage gives legal rights that that other other um relationships don't have. Um, I think symbolically for Northern Ireland, equal marriage was was massive. Um, we are in a context where, I mean, listening to Amani speak about Kenya and things that kind of be like, I need to wind my neck in and not yeah um yeah we, we have we have homophobic um politicians um it's not that long ago a former first minister said um if homosexuality was criminalized again that um they would hope people would follow the law um so I think symbolically equal marriage coming in and it being um thousands of people taken to the streets in support um was was massive for affirming um lgbt relationships um but practically it also um helped address some things um like trans people had to choose between either getting divorced or getting a gender recognition certificate um so i i do think you can be a feminist and be married um i don't think marriage is i think marriage is what you make of it not necessarily what it was historically um, but we also have the option of civil partnerships for people who want to have a legally recognised relationship, regardless of the gender of their partner, without the the sort of institutional hangovers of of marriage. So um, yeah, I think particularly for things like we know people who haven't been allowed to be next of kin for their their long term partner and to make healthcare decisions because the relationship hasn't been legally recognised. So. Um, yeah, I think it is important and I don't think it's I I understand we get there's plenty of discussions happen about yeah, can you be yeah, is this assimilation? Um is it still queer? I I, th I think it's what you make of it. Um so yeah, I think you can be in a in a queer marriage. Um yeah. <laughs> and and the legal benefits that come from it. Um maybe we need to look at other things as well, like um kinship groups and, and stuff like that. But to me, that's not material reality yet. So it's all a bit theoretical. Thank you. I, 
I'm sitting here feeling uh, increasing sympathy for the committee members that we have here and elsewhere and the challenges they face in delivering on some of these questions. So yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely standing in awe right now of, of um, yeah, your role. We've got a couple of um, people here waiting patiently. If it's okay, I will stick to the order that I suggested and turn to my, my colleague Megan here to ask her or to make a contribution or ask her a question first. And then we have Sandra Duffy. I'll come to you after. Hey, thank you both uh, for those great presentations. I have questions for each of you. Uh, Danielle, I'm wondering if you could talk through or just comment on the role of positive obligations in respect of um, SOGI and equal rights, because you can see from your presentation, particularly in thinking about reproductive choices, that it's great if there's no sort of a formal ban on accessing IVF or IUI or any other options that might exist, but if you don't have the money, you don't really have an option. So what kind of positive obligations are there for the state to facilitate or fulfill um, those reproductive choices so it's not just illusory or just um, sort of on paper but actually exists in reality for people and Mani I have uh, two questions for you and Danielle you can one this first question probably also uh, resonates in Northern Ireland is just asking what kind of tools or what kind of things does the CEDA committee need to provide as advocacy tools for dealing with conservative, religious, and traditional norms that are constantly pushing up against SOGI rights? How can the CEDA committee position itself in a way that you know, provides um, tools and, and arguments that can be used within your various domestic settings? Because it's so interesting to me that you can, we can see they're keeping the criminalization as a way to protect the family. And that's, I'm assuming it has some, uh, some religious, conservative, traditional norms about what a family is. And my second question, Imani, is that we can see from the earlier presentations today that you know the, the committee has been quite clear about uh, sexual orientation, gender identity need to be included as a ground of discrimination. And I know in Article 27 of the Kenyan Constitution, it's not. I know it was very contentious in the drafting. And I'm just wondering if you could comment on whether there is any strategic litigation thinking about going in that direction or, or if um, kind of activists and, and people on the ground in Kenya feel this is not the strategic moment to be bringing litigation to include sexual orientation as a ground of discrimination. Thank you very much. I might just see if um, Sandra Duffy's is a contribution well, I think what we'll do, we'll pass over to the presenters to answer Megan's and then we'll give Sandra the floor after the speakers have um, just responded to Megan's. That seems the best way to do it. So um, perhaps Danielle first, if that's okay, and then Imani this time. Um, I suppose positive obligations under section 75 um, of the, the Good Friday Agreement, there's a duty for public bodies to to not discriminate against um, people of different protected characteristics with oh I muted myself I think um, so there are the yeah, section 75 obligations for public bodies um, but even with that obligation and regulations um, the main issue we have at the minute for access and assisted conception is um, is funding. The regional fertility clinic, so the NHS provider, isn't getting the funding, isn't getting the staffing levels, doesn't have the resources to deliver to more than five people a year. Like when it comes to donor IUI, 
So, and that's for for lesbian couples and single women. So it's not, um, and they're doing the best they can. Um, they're trying to redirect funds um, from other other bits of budget. Um, but at the minute, it's not just not. Um, it's not meeting demand, and people are going to age out of waiting lists. Um, which is yeah, reproductive um, healthcare is is time sensitive in a lot of cases. Um, and then I know it's not exactly what you asked, but um, despite the CEDAW recommendations being incorporated into the 2019 Northern Ireland Act and abortion regulations being put in place, our Department of Health has refused to commission services. So while we have law on paper, they're still saying they've got no duty to commission services. So healthcare professionals are um, trying to use what resources they have and, and re redirecting them from other sexual health services um, without getting training and and um, the support that they need to deliver services that we've been told if we don't have those it's a it's a grave and systematic violation of our our human rights um so I don't know whether positive obligations as well as legislation so stuff on paper and and international doesn't necessarily mean we get the outcomes still um yeah which is why we still have to do some some agitating Thank you. I'll jump straight over to you, Imani, if I may. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Danielle, and uh, yeah, thank you and love day. Uh, I had two questions, and um, uh, on the first, uh, let me answer the first one of what what is the basis of uh, inclusion of. Uh, sexual orientation or gender identity as a ground for discrimination under Article 27. And um, uh, in fact, um, uh, this is a very good thing that has come up. Uh, in Kenya, uh, has LGBTIQ persons have actually litigated in different uh, cases as opposed to the one that I mentioned on Repeal 162 on matters based off or the freedom from discrimination, uh, freedom of, of uh, expression, freedom of association amongst other issues. And in two different petitions, and uh, one of the petitions was a judicial review that was brought about by Transgender Education and Advocacy in 2013 uh, through the Executive Di Director Audrey uh, in regards to freedom of association for trans uh, trans uh, trans ITGNC persons, that's trans intersex and GNC and gender non-conforming persons in Kenya. And on the pronouncement, on the delivering of the ruling, the judges in the matter actually included gender identity as one of the grounds that a person cannot be discriminated against. So the law in Kenya is normally shaped through different ways. And uh, the, the, the High Court in Kenya is actually allowed to make pronouncements and make precedent that actually form the law in Kenya. So by virtual pronouncement, virtual pronouncement that gender identity should be included as a ground against discrimination that makes it that people cannot actually be discriminated against gender identity. And to, to the second, um, Second, second case, second strategic litigation case that actually went through court. 
uh, it was petition for 40 of 2013 that was taken uh, to court back then. And then there was a pronouncement that uh, was delivered in 2015 where um, sexual orientation was actually also included as a ground that people cannot be discriminated against. Now, the problem is freedom from discrimination is not an absolute right. It's actually limited. So there are ways in which even if these pronouncements, different pronouncements have actually been made to include uh, sex to mean, and sex and gender to mean sexual orientation and gender identity and expression, but state actors can still you know, manipulate the law and it can be actually interpreted that it does not, it's not an absolute right. Uh, which is something that we still struggle with because of how progressive uh, the courts are, but the practice is not as, pro it, it, it hasn't yet caught up with how, you know, the pronouncements are made in court. They there has been numerous uh, strategic litigations cases that have actually been won uh, from 2017 in regards to uh, sex characteristics all the way till to date where people are, different people are litigating in court, but the general society and the general public has actually not caught up with the progression of the laws and the court, right? Uh, I, I think the tools that, uh, that would be available to, to, to litigants and uh, not, not only litigants, but people who um, are activists in, in in Kenya in regards uh, and you know all around us in, in regards to um, uh, how we implement the CITU convention is actually um, uh, it's actually it comes into looking at how do CITU as you know how do you ensure that these um, follow up in pronouncements that have actually been made uh, how do you ensure that there is enforcement you know how do you ensure that uh, all all persons are included as opposed to uh, just uh, being the binary of male and female because we to be honest like the numerous countries that are even more developed than what we would presume have not even achieved that equality. But how do you ensure that no state is lagging behind? How do we ensure that there's actually all of us, like you get accountable or you, you issue accountability to states to ensure that there's uh, something that is not only on paper, but something that is enforceable, right? Something that they are put to test to enforce uh, and put or ensure that there are existing laws or repeal laws that are actually discriminatory and include them in you know, uh, legislation or just general government advocacy, because you would ha actually have, uh, there would be a stepping stone or like, uh, I want to say privilege that would be accorded to you as opposed to me, as I've said before, how do you ensure that you, you enforce these instances. Over. Thank you so much. We have uh, an intervention from Sandra Duffy, which I'm very much looking forward to. I just want, before I um, pass over to her, I just want to 
flag up that we probably have not much more than absolute maximum 10 minutes left. So I'm just giving the committee members here a little bit of a, a flag waving um, opportunity to say if, if you have any comments you'd like to make after this next intervention, that it would be wonderful to hear from you. Um, no, obviously that's over to you. Um, please use the raise hand function if you'd like to make a contribution. But for now, um, over to Sandra, if I may. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be quite quick because there are far more relevant people to be hearing from uh, than me. And hopefully some of the committee members would like to would like to come in on these issues. Um, I just have a really quick response to Ksenia and uh, to uh, Imani. Um, with regard to uh, marriage, and this is something that Danielle picked up on as well, the, it's not, <laughs> so as both a personally queer and politically queer person, I am like down with heteronormativity, down with patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera, as I think many of us would, would agree with. Um, at the same time, I recognize that marriage holds a lot of value uh, for a lot of people, both symbolically and, and legally. Um, but I think the I, I, I think we can't have a binary split here between, you know, it's totally assimilationist or we can be totally radical and abolish it altogether. I think there is somewhere in the middle where we maybe one of our next human rights struggles needs to be, as Danielle said, recognizing kinship structures, recognizing different family forms. And I think something like that, uh, something like a, a more a more progressive approach to recognizing family forms would also allow for things like um, you know relationships where the participants of different gender modalities like the 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 lesbian couple um, with one cis uh, woman and one trans woman um, who wanted to uh, be registered as the the co-mothers of their baby um, so something you know maybe one of the things that we start to push for now that we have marriage equality in that in, in, in certain places, at least, um, is the recognition of, of alternative family structures and alternative family forms. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up, uh, just when Amani gave Amani's answer on um, the uh, on international law, is something that I was thinking about actually earlier when I was talking about language, um, is that international law is in itself a language. So international law has these terms that we use and international law has these terms that are justiciable. So you make these claims, you can claim, you know, you can bring in, I have a human right as a, a member of the LGBT community or as, as um, you know, some, someone who is part of a SOGI minority. Um, I have a human right to, be, to freedom from discrimination and I, it's recognized under international law. And that's translatable into a domestic legal system as well. So um, just, I, I do uh, quite a bit of work on India, um, which obviously has a very similar colonial context uh, to what Imani was saying about Kenya, um, the left, uh, the hangover, colonial hangover of, of, of laws, and especially of the penal code that, um, that would have been left behind. Um, and the, uh, progress that has been made in queer and trans rights in the courts in India in the past decade or so has been largely done through the language of international law and has largely been done through invoking things like the Ojakarta principles, like UN um, rulings. So um, I'm not sure if CEDAW was brought in, but I know the Human Rights Committee was certainly cited 
um, the European Court on Human Rights uh, was also cited. So it's very much that language of, of what is, you know, human rights are a justiciable context, human, right, uh, human rights are something that translates um, and therefore international law can be, you know, used quite effectively in the domestic context, especially when, when litigating, especially. So um, that was quite rambling. It was basically, I, I completely agree with Imani um, on the, the, the uses of, of international law. Um, so yeah, I'll hand back now. Thank you very much. That that was a lot a lot more than um, rambling. I think it, as I said, I think it again brings us back to the 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 way in which queer and feminist activists use international law and the utility that international law has. We don't, like I say, have it. There's a tendency amongst feminists, which I enjoy, not to exaggerate its potential, but also but to try and mine its potential um, and and to put the best foot forward. Um, I can't see any raised hands here from any of our panellists at the moment, so I don't think there are any further contributions here right now. I don't know if either of our speakers want to respond to any to that to that contribution there. Um, could, <laughs> is there a, a literal hand up there from Imani, thank you. So. Um, Imani, I'm just going to pass over to you. We are um, very close to time now, so if I can ask you just to yeah, present your final thoughts, but we're really looking forward to, to hearing your, your final thoughts today. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to raise an instance that, uh, an issue that um, I haven't, um, and it's basically in regard to looking inward. So in instances where even LGBTQ people engage in same-sex uh, same relationships or same-gender relationships and their qualms that they experience within their relationships, then it would be impossible for them to even seek the right to inheritance in their event that their they they partners are deceased or instances where uh, we okay. We are occasioned with inter, in, in, intimate partner violence. Then there's no justice. That there's no redress to justice that is provided for LGBTQ people because of a, a, a law that criminalizes LGBTQ people in Kenya. I just wanted to mention that it's something that I hadn't. And thank you for giving me that opportunity. Thank you so much, Labde. Thank you. And um, Danielle, I don't know if you have anything that you'd like to say at the end or... I'm just, just disappointed that we can't continue the conversation more because there's so much yeah. so much to, to unpack. And yeah, um, lots, lots of food for thought. So thanks everybody for your contributions. Uh, thank you so, so much to both of you. You've, yeah, uh, I, I guess uh, particular thanks to Danielle for stepping in at such short notice, but it was, but thank you both for the richness of your presentations and the, the people and getting us started on these discussions in, in such a wonderful way. I just wanted to thank all panelists for uh, being so rich in their presentations and uh, 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 there was a lot of, lot of freshness and the thoughts for future contemplations. That's my pleasure to thank you.
Thank you. Thank you so much, Leah. That, that's really, really generous of you. Marion, if I could ask you to take the floor, please. Yes, I too would like to thank the, uh, the uh, presenters for giving us so much, so much to think about in the committee. Um, the nuances and the um, just the extension and the imagination and the creativity that we really need to bring to this conversation and the and the courage. I think um, I think that's you know that's really really important. And so the the, the contributions have been profound and and um, certainly extended my understanding of of various um, issues. And I I think it really requires a. Uh, an imagination and a creativity and a political will to move forward to um, advance the rights of, of the Sogi community under the CEDAW Convention. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I think if that's it for contributions, thank you ever so much, Megan, for spotting those hands up. Um, I do just want to give a nod to the other committee members who've been so generous in giving their time um, and joining us today. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to have you here. But as, for now, I'll, I'll pass back to Catherine. Um, thank you. It's, uh, I, I just to thank everyone again. And the only piece of housekeeping I have is just to say, please do come join us tomorrow. These discussions will continue. We have two wonderful sessions and the links that you use for today will also work for tomorrow. Uh, we are recording all of the discussions. Uh, this recording will be available immediately on the Facebook page for the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. And for anyone who's registered, uh, we will convey the links to you shortly after the, the workshop concludes as well. Uh, so thank everyone for your time and your participation, your contributions. Um, it's been really, I think, exceeded our expectations and our expectations were high. So, um, and to encourage you all just to, to come back tomorrow and have a good, have a good evening or afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Take care. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Danielle and, and Amanda.